Welcome back to Beat Seeker. I'm your host, Matt McButter. In each episode, we explore the shifting world of music with world-renowned experts and artists to take you deep, deep inside the fascinating and changing world of music technology and music discovery. And I'm your host, Mike Weider, reminding you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you like the episode. You can visit our website at beatseeker.fm where you'll find plenty of rabbit holes with extra content to dive into, guest backgrounds, and even a playlist with music recommendations from each of our guest episodes. Also, Beatseeker swag. You can stay current and talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BeatseekerPod. The linkage between music and math is not well understood. People tend to think music is creative and math is perhaps the antithesis of the creative arts. But when you think about it, music is full of mathematical concepts, time signatures, sets, loops, patterns, and recursion, to name a few. There are even studies that show that children who play musical instruments are better at solving complex math problems. To help us better understand this music-math relationship is Marcus Miller. Born in New Jersey, Marcus grew up in a house full of music. He took up saxophone at age nine and, with the help of renowned saxophonist Bruce Williams, developed a passion that put him on stage professionally at 13. With gifts extending beyond music, he graduated from Harvard with a degree in mathematics. After a short stint at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, he moved to New York to pursue music full-time. Marcus maintains his interest in mathematics and physics, giving talks, tutoring, and studying independently under scholars at Columbia and Princeton. In addition, he works at Mathem Addicts, a program for New York City children who are extraordinarily gifted in math. He joins us today from New York City. Marcus, thanks for joining us on BeatSeeker. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Marcus, you have a really unique background. You studied math at Harvard. You worked for a hedge fund. You're an accomplished professional saxophonist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and, and also speaker. And let's throw in the fact that you're a world-class fencer. <laughs> you, <laughs> oh, yeah. you found out about that. You guys did some research. Yeah. Okay, it was okay. at one but, point. But, yeah. So you, I would say you've you've perhaps not followed uh, a more conventional artist path, if there is such a thing. So can you just give us a little bit of the backstory as to how you arrived at a career in music? Sure. Um, let's see. So I started playing the saxophone when I was nine. And the reason I started playing the saxophone when I was nine is because my father played the saxophone in college. And uh, and when they were handing out instruments in fourth grade, he said, well, let's go up to the attic and grab that saxophone I have in the attic rather than having to buy a whole new instrument. So we got that fixed up uh, the August before, and I believe it was August 9th uh, was the day we got it back, got the horn back. Um, and, uh, and we got a method book and he taught me a little bit of how to play. So I showed up to the first day of school knowing how to play tequila. Um, and, uh, and then the <laughs> band director thought that I was gifted because I already had that much together. So he said, you know what, stay after school. I want to show you some things. Um, <laughs> yep. So I started playing, um, I started, uh, I played my first gig when I was 13 years old and was playing kind of semi-pro playing gigs around New Jersey, uh, as a, uh, as a teenager. Um, and, uh, and, uh, when it came time to choose schools, I was thinking about music school, but all of my music mentors actually told me, you know what, your, your grades are really good. Uh, you're ranked in the country in fencing. Um, you have kind of all these talents. So, uh, so, you know, you go, go, don't go to music school. It's going to be hard to pay back $60,000 a year of debt. Um, as a jazz musician. So, uh, so, Certainly. 
Um, so I decided to, uh, so I decided to go to Harvard. Um, I didn't know what I was doing my freshman year. I was just kind of having fun and fooling around, um, and decided to make the most of my education in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. And, um, after doing a, a, a survey of everything that I'd ever want to take at Harvard, um, I wrote down like every possible class. So like Norse mythology, cause why not? Um, geology, you know, all these interesting things. I found that there was a preponderance of uh, classes in math, physics, and computer science, the most being math. And and the story I always tell is, you know, I would look at the the math courses and there'd be words like uh, Notherian ring or like Riemann manifold. And I had no idea what these things were, but I'm like, well, I kind of want to know though. And there's also kind of the idea where it's like, for things in the humanities, I had the uh, I had the idea that if I wanted to learn history or if I wanted to learn literature or sociology, you know, I could read, I could, you know, go find a book on that and, and pick it up. But something like math um, required kind of a special training. Um, and that uh, given that I was at uh, uh, such a, a high level environment, why not go for that kind of training? Because then it'd be something I'd know um, for the rest of my yeah, life. Yeah, makes sense. Mm. And so then from Harvard right into hedge fund management? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, the, um, uh, I did some, uh, some math research between my junior and senior year. And from that experience kind of concluded that I didn't want to spend most of my twenties in the library. There was this joke, uh, that we would tell math is doing math professionally is kind of like being in the CIA because no one ever sees you and you can't tell anybody about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, I was kind of young and had, had a little bit of vim and vigor. I wanted to be out in the, in the world. And, you know, at Harvard pre a 2008 crash, um, lots of my friends were, were making a lot of money in finance and they were finishing up their internships. And I'm like, oh, that, that kind of seems fun. Um, so I decided to interview with some investment banks and some hedge funds and, uh, and Bridgewater Associates, uh, hired me. Uh, and so I worked there briefly. And so giving up those financial rewards of, you know, of, of being in, in hedge fund management to pursue what is, you know, traditionally a, f a fairly maybe risky career in, in music is, couldn't have been an easy decision. What convinced you that this was the right path? Um, well, see, I, I'm the kind of person where I have to, I'm, I'm very dysfunctional if I'm not doing something that's kind of in alignment with myself. I'm, I'm actually not good at like pushing through things. Uh, I'm much better served if I kind of figure out what feels right on a lot of my own dimensions and then go for it. And frankly, the, uh, the, um, the finance situation just didn't feel right in my core. Mm. Uh, and, and there were a couple of moments. One is that, uh, I became, um, close to one of the, one of the co-CIOs of the firm and hearing him talk about his story and how he got into finance, it really for him um, wasn't about, and, and lots of the other CIOs too, it really wasn't about uh, just making the most money. It was really about a an honest investigation into how the world works and analyzing that through the lens of capital flows and capital markets. And that's why they invest in, um, that's why they invest, that's why they take on the strategies, that's why they do the research. And just watching um, watching him kind of walk around with that love in his heart for what he was doing and feeling how much that wasn't there for me with this particular job was kind of an inciting incident. Um, the, the joke I always tell is that I could see my reflection from behind the Excel spreadsheet looking at me like, bro, <laughs> come on, we're creative. What, do, yeah. what are you doing here? And you know, me from, from the outside at the computer is like, man, shut up. We're making money. Shut up, man. Don't, <laughs> don't screw this up. And, and, and so it was really, it was really interestingly enough, 
seeing the kind of person that that the CIO was doing the thing that meant something to him. Um, it happened to make a lot of money, but that that really really wasn't the uh, wasn't the motivation. And uh, you know, I'm still friends with them, and mm-hmm. that 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 never comes through. Mm-hmm. Is that like um, uh, like keeping score with other hedge fund managers and 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 having you know having the the the, the most billions or having the biggest this that and the third? That's not how they carry mm-hmm. themselves. Did you ever meet uh, Ray Dalio? Yeah, when, several times when you were there. Yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, several times. Yeah. So, yes, he is. so obviously, you know, following your heart like that or following your passion, <clears throat> it worked out really well. You've gone on to a very, you know, illustrious career as a, as a recording artist and uh, in the music industry. And in addition to that, you're doing Ted talks, you're giving lectures. How, how did that side of your career evolve? Well, um, I was always into math. Uh, my father by trade, once again, going back to my pops, um, by trade, he's an accountant. And so there was always math in the house. He also had an enormous music collection. So there were always music in the house. In fact, one of my first memories is of him playing Philip Glass Einstein on the beach. Um, and there's this moment where there, there's this uh, choir that's counting. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, you know. Um, I know that track. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So... I had a I had I had a relationship to math even before college. Um, it kind of got severed. I had a teacher with whom I had some uh, disagreements in in sixth grade, and my sixth grader reaction was like, "Well, I don't like you, so I don't like math." And so I, I put it down, um, kind of metaphorically for mm-hmm. a while, um, until I, I got to college. I'm like, "Well, no, actually, hold on, put her aside. Like this stuff is really cool." And even as I was, you know, being a musician in New York is is not easy. Uh, for a while, in order to support myself, I was doing a combination of playing and uh, and tutoring um, math and physics to, to high school and college students and SAT and that kind of thing. Um, but in my spare time, I was always kind of reading um, lots of math and, and, and catching up. Um, being that I was a little bit behind the eight ball in college, I felt like there were lots of things that I wanted to learn that I didn't get to learn or things that I learned, but it went by too quickly and I didn't get to master. And, um, and so, um, you know, kind of my hobby was I would download, you know, PDFs of monographs of different mathematical topics. I'd buy, um, textbooks, uh, like graduate texts in mathematics are these like yellow books, um, that are really complicated <laughs> and you can kind of get through them. And I would just kind of always be, be reading and studying this. Um, and I found that if I put that down for too long, I would just get sad inside the same way I kind of got sad inside when I put down music mm-hmm. for too long to, to, to work in finance. And so there wasn't so much of a moment, but there was a, a difficult reconciliation of like, if I was to go through, you know, I, I would take, you know, classes at, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, audit classes at, you know, different universities in math or theoretical physics. And uh, there was this difficult reconciliation. It was like, if I'm going to go to grad school, I'll literally have to give up music. I won't be able to tour. I won't be able to play because this stuff is, you know, very difficult um, to, to, to master, especially if I'm competing with people who this is the only thing that they do. But similarly, if I put math down and just like delve completely into music and don't take kind of this time out, something else of me will be lost. And so for a while, it was just a, a painful struggle of how to reconcile these two seeming opposites or seeming uh, seemingly disparate tracks of, of life. And that kind of came together. I said, well, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of verbiage around the relationship between math and music. 
and a lot of that goes into like the science of sound and, and you know how to analyze uh how to analyze audio phenomena whether it's like signal processing or um or uh kind of data structures or whether it's you know uh kind of neurophysiological but i kind of ask myself well what do these things mean to me like why am i so compelled to investigate these two worlds and to and to live in them um even though they don't share much real estate and the the answer kind of came is that I, I, they were both avenues toward a kind of transcendent beauty and um an access to kind of creativity and imagination and wonder and they're different languages they overlap sometimes um for me subjectively they overlap but i don't know that that the way they they kind of relate for me works for everybody so it's not like i could easily propose a uh i mean i i you know i could say suggest and have suggested like ways of understanding music from a mathematical perspective or ways of like getting number skills together you know with with musical ideas it, and that kind it, of thing. it it sounds like but, you you had a love for both these things you had a love yeah. for music you had a love for for math and you like doing them both independently what i was kind of wondering about is when did you first sort of realize the the union or the intersection of this Venn diagram was uh, was was something that could have um, more interest for you or benefit to you as an artist or as a mathematician. Yeah, uh, I would say that really when I just kind of went with the idea that I was going, asking myself what what do these two things mean to me, and then just kind of sharing and talking about that, really exploring that idea. Um, it started in in conversations. Um, it ended up in a. Uh, it developed into a residency at the the National Museum of Mathematics, where you know I would just bring mathematicians and musicians together to talk about some of these topics. Mm. Um, and um, and it's it's definitely an ongoing um, exploration. But you know, with with a question as abstract as that, there there was no guarantee. It was just like, hey, I have this to share, so let me share it and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and you know, it seems like so. The first time I heard about this idea or the common themes, let's say, between music and math, was this book when we were in university, Gödel Escher Bach, that was going around. It's kind of this cult book, and I don't know if I completely understood everything, but but it was that was published in the seventies. But as I understand it, the observation that music and math are connected go back hundreds, even thousands of years. Can you can you walk us through a little bit about you know who are some of the first people to observe this link this linkage, and how has our understanding of the relationship evolved over over the years? Sure. Um, so let's see the the kind of godfather in the recorded history I'm familiar with of this is Pythagoras. Um, Pythagoras was a uh, was a teacher something of a uh, something of a mystic and to some like a prophet um he had a, a whole cult around him uh he studied in he studied in egypt for a while and then he came back with this with this great knowledge to to greece and um and he is credited uh at least in in common history with identifying that uh that pitches and intervals correspond to our ratios of length so that if you you know if you have a string and you pluck it and you get a note, if you um, if you go halfway down, then you get a note an octave up, and then if you three halves is a is a fifth, and four thirds is a is a fourth, and etc. And so that you can generate uh, you can generate something that's close to our current scale 
um, simply by manipulating these ratios. And so then there was this, you know, deep kind of like relationship between math and geometry and music. This kind of extends into a system of education, um, which was as, as you know, the, the knowledge of the Greeks was lost to, to Europe for a while. Um, kind of preserved by Arab scholars while, while Europe was going through the dark ages and then reintroduced in the, in the Renaissance and, um, and, and furthered in the Enlightenment. And so there was this, uh, there was this method of education, two methods of education, one called the trivium, one called the quadrivium. I'll speak on the quadrivium because it's most relevant. But the idea was that, uh, there's this kind of procession of knowledge. Uh, you start with arithmetic. Arithmetic teaches you the harmony of number that you, you want to attune yourself to what, uh, to what correct logic and number feels like. One plus one equals two makes you feel a certain way. If somebody says one plus one equals five, like almost in a visceral way, most of us would be like, what's going on here? Um, and so the idea is you, you tune yourself to that level. Then you go on to geometry, which is number in space. Um, and so you tune yourself to the, to the realities and the truths and the, and the things that are, uh, things that are valid in that study. And then music was considered to be number in time. Uh, and, and then on to, uh, the uh, astronomy, which was a uh, number in space and time. So you get these terms like the music of the spheres and that kind of thing. Um, their system of astronomy was, uh, wasn't quite correct, or it's at least not the one we use today. So, uh, so there, the, the analogy kind of breaks down there, but the idea that you're attuning yourself to music and you're, and, and, and it's intimately related to number and it even has a spiritual property that, that connects to virtue and all of that, um, was, was a big idea. Um, things like the, Fibonacci sequence actually was known as the, uh, the, I was told by, uh, by a great mathematician and tabla player, fields medalist, Manjo Bhargava, that this was actually, uh, discovered by an Indian poet in the ninth century named Hima Chandra, um, who was able to derive, uh, was able to derive what we now know as the Fibonacci sequence by, um, figuring out, uh, possible ways to end, um, phrases in poetry. And so there's this relationship between music. It's like if you have two syllable or one syllable words and you have, you know, um, n number of, uh, places to, to put thing, to, to put, you know, words to finish a phrase, how many possible, according to n, how many possible, uh, options do you have? And it ends up that the number of possible options, the, the nth possible option is the nth term of the Fibonacci sequence. Uh, and so that was known for a while. And once again, we get this, this very deep relationship between, um, music and, uh, and, and poetry and, and that kind of creative expression in mathematics. Um, so, you know, this, this stuff is all over the place. Um, you know, nowadays we talk, uh, Bach did a lot with, um, and I think this was a practice of some of Bach's, uh, contemporaries and Bach himself, which was, uh, proportioning out, um, the length of your piece. And then, um, and then using certain ratios, using certain geometric ratios that were said to have spiritual properties to, uh, to, to kind of, um, accentuate, um, as a compositional tool, accentuate different moments. So symmetry is an obvious one. The golden ratio is another one that's a little bit subtle, but Bach uses it all the time. Hmm. And, and literally. And is this, this something yeah. like if you're getting training as a, uh, formal training as a musician, would there be courses on this in, in university or, uh, training programs and vice versa and mathematics? Like, is this a discipline per se with, uh, you know, or is it, is it more something that is sort of just acknowledged by various academics and observation? I, I don't think it's a discipline because when I tell this to people who have been trained, especially the Bach thing, um, 
most people are surprised. I learned it from um, from a classical composer, composition te- composer and composition teacher at Juilliard named Kendall Briggs, um, who comes from the lineage of this great teacher named Nadia Boulanger. Um, and uh, and so the knowledge is out there, but I don't think it's mainstream, and I don't think it's um, I don't think it's it's uh, it's prominently or preeminently discussed. Um, so, uh, but you know, I, I could be wrong. You know, I. I it's interesting. I it's, so many you, you would know. So, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah. It, but it just, it, it's interesting that it just kind of sits there in the background. Cause I, I think back and, and some of the, you know, people that, that I've come into contact with that were the most kind of precocious math students growing up played an instrument. Like almost I, when I, I think about it almost invariably. And then I, I, I think of, you know, I read Chris Hadfield's autobiography a few years ago and he said, uh, you know, he, he played in a band, I think they were called Max Q of, of an, an all astronaut band that sort of sits in Houston and it has different members depending on who's coming through and doing their training in Houston, because he said almost every astronaut he's ever met plays an instrument. Like it's just, it just kind of goes hand in hand. They're all kind of, you know, mathematical and musical at the same time. It's almost like there's a, a, a similar kind of brain process or something that, um, you know, that links them as well. Would you say that's, that's been your observation? Yeah. Yeah, there. Yes and no. I I know a lot of musicians who are not good mathematicians. I know a lot of mathematicians who aren't good musicians. Um, I I I can't really tell um how like if there would be if we could attribute it to like a neurological link. Um, I've seen some of the papers and some of the writings on um the the uh kind of neuroscience of the of the brain and 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 sorry the neuroscience of music. And there are there are gestures toward it, but it seems very much like an open question that's not fully understood. And I think from my perspective, the the way I view it personally and the way I kind of teach it is uh is kind of it, there's kind of like a, a spiritual thing to it. There's the the attunement to harmony. That's something that like I feel like is if if somebody says your brain has to be this way then a certain number of people are just going to cut themselves off from it mm-hmm. and it, it and even and even if it's kind of true like your brain has to be this way it doesn't really give room for the ability to, to cultivate something to like one's own highest good or one's own highest level um and so i resist um for for my own understanding and development understanding my own musical and mathematical limitations i kind of resist that that approach to, to, to understanding it so much. Um, I, I understand that it's valid, but, um, for me, what gives me more inspiration and, and what I talk to people more about is like, you know, how do you attune yourself? How do you become more sensitive to, you know, some area of life? And I think that the sensitivities, um, one needs for, uh, mathematics and, and music, there's something of a similar latent potential. Um, but I, I don't think it's for everybody. I can't really generalize that. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't honestly know what that is. Um, I know it it's works a, for me, Yeah, but it's interesting. It's, interesting. it's kind so. of, it seems like it's almost, you know, hidden or lurking in there. I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, maybe some of the practical applications you mentioned, uh, you know, of, of math and music, you mentioned, uh, you know, even Bach using, uh, the golden mean, for example, but you know, in, in, in modern music creation or just kind of in the present day, uh, are there ways that math can help musicians create better music or can it go the other way? I mean, can music be used to solve math problems? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so 
Einstein was known to to when he was stuck on a problem, he would you know go play some piano or violin or something to to clear his mind. Um, some of the mathematicians that I've talked to who are also musicians um, talk about music as having this kind of similar power of uh, of being able to calm things, being being able to to kind of like activate the subconscious in a different way when they're taking a break from a difficult problem. Um, hmm. I don't know that that's universal. Um, but it's but it's something that I've heard kind of more often than not from from some very brilliant people. So uh, so at least it's a signal. There are some ideas in music theory that one can learn. Uh, one can then gain access to certain fields in mathematics. I'm thinking in particular, like if you study counterpoint, like there's there's like a combinatorial intuition that comes if you're like trying to make four lines fit four lines of counterpoint fit together. It doesn't allow you to directly calculate. All right, well, what is you know five choose uh five choose two or something like that but but like for for me i kind of noticed that like oh I, I feel like i'm solving a similar kind of problem and so the looking at these things gets a little smoother um going the other way there are lots of mathematical tricks for composition that golden ratio trick is actually used a lot in pop music and i did a, a seminar um once where i was looking at some of the songs that were nominated for the Grammys. Um, and it took five songs kind of at random. Um, and, uh, and you know, that, that were nominated for best, uh, best song, either best song or best recording. Um, and it turns out that, uh, four out of the five adhered pretty strictly with like an interval of like three seconds to like a golden ratio oriented composition. There was one that had like kind of nested golden ratios. Um, I know one of the, one of the composers, uh, John Batiste is a, um, a, you know, I, I kind of asked him directly, like if he did that on purpose and, and he didn't, that was just kind of a feeling thing. And you get to mm. this. So you think that most, most artists are doing that inadvertently like John, or, or there is a, a knowledge of that, that, that p artists are trying to engineer that. I, I don't know. Um, I know that some songwriting camps are very specific about the, the, how many syllables everything is, how long certain things are. And they, they kind of assembly line songs like that. John in particular, um, it, it might just be something that's around enough that you can kind of feel when, when it's going to be, um, naturally, but maybe, I don't know if it originated in like just a completely, uh, spiritual feeling of, of, of the golden ratio. Yeah. Uh, Harmon organizing, or if it's like somebody did it on purpose in the culture and their music got large enough that people are mm. imitating that without knowing the specifics yeah, right. of what they're imitating. I can't, I can't tell. Fascinating. So in, in past episodes, we've interviewed some guests about how uh, AI artificial intelligence is already impacting the creation of music and how this trend is likely more likely than not to continue in more and more profound ways. I'm wondering if you've thought about this at all. If if music can be, you know, if the, if there's if music could be codified in math, it kind of stands to reason that music could be more easily manipulated by by computer programs and by artificial intelligence. Is there? Do you think there's something there? I hope not. I hope we can't. Do that. <laughs> um, there there is. So I have this this kind of model when I'm thinking about the evolution of, of music. And I kind of use it for myself and I use it for people who I'm teaching how to listen to music. Um, is you kind of, the, the kind of primordial instances of music are like melody and rhythm. Um, and one can argue like which comes first, but those both have very 
um, distinct human images. Uh, the melody is the voice, um, rhythm as, you know, the interact, like slapping something in the environment, right? Like it's, you, there, there's a physicality to it. And then you extend to harmony, um, or like harmony and polyrhythm, which is just multiple people singing or playing together. And then that kind of evolves into something like symphonic work, um, where you've just taken that to an extreme, but you're still looking at people dealing with um, an analog technology using um, instruments that are built for the purpose of music making in order to to come together in community and and create sound. Um, and once you get into electronic music, then your the image is no longer human. The archetypal image is no longer human. The archetypal image is um, is now attached irreversibly to a machine. And um, there's something chilling about that. I don't know that. I could motivate that argument. It would it would take a little bit of time, uh, but I'll, I'll I'll say here that that there seems to be something very chilling about that, and there's a degree to which I believe we do damage to our own capacity uh, for humanness. The more that we rely, not use as a tool, but like rely on, become dependent on, and become too used to sounds that come from the machine. Um, because there's a, because in my, in my, in my heart, there's a, there's a very, there's a distinction. There's a really important distinction between that, which comes from the machine, a tool, which is not invented for the purpose of creating music. It's something that can do it, um, versus something that comes from this kind of human spirit of community and coming together, the, the natural friction it takes to develop mastery, which is something that can just be done in, immediately on, on the machine. Mm -hmm. You're worried that else. taking the, the human out of this, and leaving it to the machines is going to create something that lacks the the essence or spirituality of what what we love in music. I, I think it. I think it's actually a greater than that. I think the. I think, and this is a problem in, or this is a concern I have inside of music and with, with larger things. Is that by doing violent, like we're actually doing a kind of violence to our own soul, um, and we don't know where that takes us. That could take us mm. to like a really, really bad place, like in society, like in the world. Um, Leonard Bernstein, uh, if you watch his Harvard lectures, he talks about Mahler, um, the, the last movement of Mahler kind of predicting, uh, as predictive of the 20th century being a century of, of, of death, right? And like, how much, do, how much do we, you know, make, uh, make classical musicians or, or musicians period prophets of, of, of an unknown future, like a little bit preposterous, but at the same time, living inside of music and living inside of playing in a, a physical instrument and, and being in that kind of field, like I kind of know what he's talking about. Um, and once again, I don't know that one can take that statement literally or make kind of a formalized theory about how that works, but it also seems to me to be non-trivial, um, that the, that the the way that we make music is reflective of the way that we interact with each other is a is reflective of our values and that line goes both ways and if we value the machine too much um we lose something that we we lose something that holds us together like as a people as a species as a race um that we may not want to lose cuz we may not be able to get it back I love that I love this topic of conversation I I could talk about this for for absolute hours Marcus, we are at the time in the podcast where we're going to ask you for a music recommendation. We have a guest picks playlist on Spotify, and we'd like you to give us a recommendation we can throw on there. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll give two. Um, 
I really like this Brazilian group. It's a genre of music called Pagodi. And the, the, the group is called Turma do Pagodi. T-U-R-M-A-D-O Pagodi. P-A-D-O-G-E. I really like this song, uh, Lansinho, uh, from the album, uh, Som das Multidois. And that, that came out in 2012, but they have a lot of good stuff. And that is like, the Brazilian music, it retains this kind of like the, the, the African kind of percussion, um, and the, the kind of the, and like this like rich harmonic palette and like everybody can sing and everybody can dance. Like the, it's an us alive album. You hear like thousands of people in the audience singing along in tune, like in rhythm. It's like, it's, it's a really beautiful thing. So, uh, so I would, I would recommend that, uh, that group. And then my favorite, uh, and I do, I do like electronic music. So my favorite producer uh, these days is this guy named Lido, L-I-D-O. And he has an album, uh, called, uh, Peter, or Peter, I guess it's P-E-D-E-R. He's Norwegian. So I don't know. I, that might be pronounced Peter. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I really love his sound design. So great. Well, thanks for those picks. I'm, I, that, that, I, they sound awesome. I can't wait to hear them. <laughs> uh, so lastly, if our listeners want to follow your work uh, or you, where would you like them to go? Sure. Uh, Imaginewithmarcus.com is my website. You can sign up for my mailing list there. Uh, lots, of, lots of stuff happening on my end. Um, Imagine with Marcus is also my Instagram. So if you want to follow me there, um, those are probably the two best places to find me. Yeah, I, um, I I can encourage people to go check this out. One of the the really cool areas um, is the your listening uh, lectures on how to listen to music, and <clears throat> it's particularly the one on Marvin Gaye's "Let's Going On." I, I listen to that, and that basically Marcus dissects the album and helps reinterpret it for from a listening standpoint to sort of pick up on things that. I had never, I mean, I've heard that album a thousand times, but I never heard the things that you talked about until you said it. And it was just a really cool way to uh, experience music uh, for sure. So that was a great, uh, a great resource that you'll find on the, the Marcus website. All right. We'll put some links to those in the show notes as well. And Marcus, that was really interesting. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Beat Seeker with your hosts, Matt McButter and Mike Wider. If you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, leave us a rating and a comment and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to dig deeper into this content, visit beatseeker.fm. That's B-E-A-T seeker.fm. And if you want to be part of the show, check out our Patreon link. Interact with us on social media at BeatSeekerPod. BeatSeeker is recorded in the Devil Lake Studios and the Tunnel Under Arundel. The show is produced by Matt McButter, Mike Wider, and Kate McCartney. Tim Ratledge is our editor. Thanks for tuning in, and keep seeking. <laughs>